Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. morning again. Um, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the planting pastor here at Advent. And um, every now and then I'll get questions like, uh, you know, do you listen to other people's sermons or, or things along those lines? And uh, the answer is, is yes. I, uh, I pretty much only listen to one of my former pastors, my campus minister, when I was uh, uh, in college, and uh, his name is Brian Habig, for any of y'all who might know him or listen to him, and I was listening to you know his church's podcast, and he actually helped in one of the most recent sermons, helped me realize how strange what we're doing actually is, um, that like, unless you're a Texas Aggie or you're like an English Premier League fan, the whole concept of gathering together to stand and sing and uh, and sit and do all of this stuff, um, uh, you know, it, it feels so foreign to us, right? And in particular, what we're about to do is also kind of strange. Um, if you are new to Christianity or you're um, you're not a Christian, uh, this entire thing feels strange. But we believe that God has spoken to us through the Bible. Right, you'll even hear people say, uh, "This is the word of God or the word of the Lord," as we were saying a little bit earlier. And because we believe that, right, we believe that it's important um, to read it, to learn it, to apply it, to live it out. Um, right, we believe that God's word is life-giving to us, and that's why we spend this time opening it up together and, and learning about it together. Um, it's also why we have Bibles on the pew. Um, so for those of y'all who maybe don't have one, that's our gift to you. If you want, if you don't have one, um, feel free to take it. You don't have to tell anybody about it. Uh, feel free to take it home and, and use it. Um, but what we have been doing here at Advent is we've been opening the Bible to the very beginning, uh, to the book called Genesis, which actually means beginning. Um, and we've, we're going through a series that we call The Origin Story. Right, much like uh, if you are um, kind of a superhero fan and you want to know where the different superheroes came from and where they got their strength, you get to know their origin story. Right, and that is what we're doing. What is our origin? Um, what is the origin of the world? Why are we the way that we are? Um, and why is the world the way that it is? That's the questions that we've been considering together. Um, and so we've worked through the first five chapters of Genesis so far, uh, and we're coming to, to chapter six, um, to probably one of the most familiar stories uh, that most of us have encountered, right? And I never want to assume that anyone here knows anything about the Bible, um, but I would imagine that most of you, whether you've read the Bible or not, are familiar somewhat with this story, Right? And because of that familiarity, there's going to be some struggle that we have with this. Right? We think we know what the passage is telling us, or we think we know things about it. Uh, right? We think that maybe it's the stories about uh, you know, Noah and the flood is about the cute animals that come two by two onto the boat, or that, uh, that it's about a, 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 an unbelievable miracle and a, and a man and his family building the boat together and surviving a catastrophic flood. 
But I want for us to recognize that our familiarity might actually be a struggle, um, that it makes us make assumptions about the Bible and about the text that may be wrong. And so as we read it, let's put those assumptions aside as best as we can, and let's read this passage with fresh eyes. All right, let's see what God is teaching us about himself, about who we are, um, and about what this actually means for us. And so we're going to be reading a very cut-up passage. That's not because I'm trying to avoid certain parts of it. In fact, if you have the Pew Bible there, you can kind of read the entirety of it together, but it's to save time um, and to make sure that we understand kind of what the, the gist of the whole story is about. Um, and today we're focusing more on the catastrophic nature of the flood. Uh, next week we'll be so focusing more about the promise that comes out of the flood. So if you would, turn with me to to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 9, and then uh, we're going to skip throughout. uh, And um, you you can also follow along there. So read along with me as I read for us. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. To verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with with you. And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. To chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all of your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in, in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and the pair of the animals that are, that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord God had commanded him. To verse 11. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. 18. The waters prevailed, and they increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that 
the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when we read a story like this, we have a lot of reactions. Um, all right, some of us believe you know, this is way too fantastical. Right? Um, you know, things like this just do not happen. And unlike the song, I do not believe in miracles. Right? Um, you know, uh, but, this isn't, uh, but isn't that actually the nature of miracles themselves? Right? That they are, in fact, God's sovereign hand changing the normal rhythms or the, the, the order of the world and doing so by himself, right? Their very definition, the very definition of a miracle is that they don't normally happen, right? They're not replicable, so to speak, right? And I certainly sympathize with doubts, right? Because these things don't normally happen, right? We think, what did the original audience get wrong here, Right, um, you know, much like when we hear, you know, of the mountain man who spotted yet another yeti or yet another Bigfoot. Right, how much did that guy sleep, and how much did he have to drink? Right, uh, when he misidentified his hairy friend as a yeti. Um, right, so too we think, what did the author misunderstand? Right, but I submit to you, if we have trouble believing the historicity of a flood event or a flood event like what is being described here, we will have trouble with all of Christianity. Because the crux of our faith is the belief that God became a man and that that God-man submitted himself to a humiliating death and that God-man rose from the dead, defeating death and ultimately guaranteeing our own resurrection for the life to come. So... If we have trouble with a miraculous idea of a flood, we're going to have trouble with all of Christianity. We should not dismiss the story based on the miraculous because then we would have to dismiss all of Christianity. For others of us, we struggle with it because we're obsessed with figuring out the historicity of it, right? We, we might be willing to believe, but we want to see more and more facts about it. Right? We want to know the when, the where, the why, the how much water covered how much of the earth and exactly what time and where is the ark now. Right, We want to know all about it. And once we understand the historicity of it, then we'll get to know more of what's going on in the story here. But as we focus so much on the historicity of the event, we actually miss the purpose of why it is written here in Genesis. That it is answering a fundamental question that we all have, which is, why in a broken and fallen world are there such things as natural disasters? And two, is there anyone or anything that is actually in control of what is going on? Right? That is the fundamental question that is being answered through the Noah story before we get to the promise that is to come. And so today, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about it in, in, in uh, this sort of context. I want to spend a little bit of time dealing with kind of the histor historical questions or things and baggage we bring to it, but I want to spend the majority of our time talking about the faith of Noah, um, and then finally, the provision of God. So the challenges of the context, the faith of Noah, and the provision of God. 
So as we come to the context, there's usually two different types of questions that we bring to it. We bring kind of the, the historical, you know, geological questions and the archaeological questions, um, right? Christians have focused a lot on the evidence that is or isn't available from the geological record about a worldwide flood or a very large local flood, right? And, and you know, we'll see references to different studies about you know, rocks. I'm not a geologist. I don't, I don't know. Uh, right? We pay attention to different fossils that are found on land, and we wonder, well, were these sea or ocean-faring animals? Because if they were, then that's more and more proof that there was waters covering the entire world, right? Um, we think if that evidence is there, then this is entirely true. But the problem with focusing on geological evidence is that you are living and dying based upon every study that comes out. For example, there is evidence that the Mediterranean Sea was not always a sea, right? That at some point a long time ago, the Strait of Gibraltar was actually a land you know, bridge and it fell apart. The ocean spilled into the Mediterranean Sea, and that event created unbelievable weather patterns at that point in time. Amazing, right? You know, points to the historicity of it. But then if you look at other studies, there's no evidence that at the exact same time, other things were happening like it in other parts of the world. You know, well, what do I do with that? So while geological studies are interesting, they don't do much to inform our understanding of what's going on in the passage. And that leads us to the archaeological questions. Right? If not geological questions, then maybe we focus more on the archaeology. Right? There's been endless searches for the ark. Um, and then there's been endless documentaries, and I've probably watched them all, about the search for the ark. Right? Um, or there are studies into the literature of the other cultures that write about flood stories, right? In fact, there's many other cultures, particularly from the same area, that have a flood story from the same time period, right? And for some of us, that is proof that, well, that means that this event actually happened, right? As other people are writing about it, they just get some details wrong. Or for others of us, that's proof that, that the biblical authors are just making it up and following along with what they're saying, right? And therefore, we take it whichever way we want the evidence to lead. Meanwhile, as we look at the historicity, uh, the historicity questions of the flood, we miss what the story is telling us. So if you've been in Houston for a while, um, you have experienced some level of flooding, Right, especially if you live in West U, I think like even just like a ten-minute uh, rain will flood West U at times. Um, but I've I've never felt the existential angst and questions that I began to have during Hurricane Harvey in 2017. Right, as it rained and it rained and we saw the waters rise. You know, like most Houstonians, we were like, no big deal. We've seen this before, no problem. And then it kept raining, and then it kept raining. And then it kept raining, and we felt completely helpless. Right, God, what is going on? Is it, is it going to stop? Right, are you actually in control of this thing? Right, those are the questions that we feel in a situation like that. Right, and that is what this passage is helping us to answer. Questions about why these types of events occur. 
right? And who is in control? Questions about world events that are so far outside of our control that we are completely helpless to stop it. And all we can do is sort of take cover or hold on as tight as we possibly can and hope that it passes quickly. The point is that it isn't because, and this is what the passage is teaching us, that these events do not happen because God is capricious, right? And this sort of Dennis the Menace-like character holding up magnifying glasses to fry ants on the sidewalk, right? Just out of his own good pleasure, wanting to wreak havoc and destruction. No, the... That is what the other flood stories actually of the same time period are actually about. That the gods, out of their own pleasure at certain points, kind of treated mankind like that and just felt like, hey, this will be fun. Let's flood the earth. That's what those other stories are teaching. But that is not what our story is teaching. This story is teaching us something different. That disasters are not part of the way that the world is supposed to be. Nor do they just happen because the gods want to hurt you. For fun. All right, so, you know, maybe you weren't here during Hurricane Harvey. Um, and, you know, I think for many of you, maybe you weren't alive during Hurricane Katrina. But for the rest of you that were alive during Hurricane Katrina, it sparked a ton of questions about why it happened and why in particular it hit New Orleans. Right? Some said it was because of the sin of New Orleans, that that is why God sent a hurricane specifically there. Or after Hurricane Harvey, it was said that, you know, I actually heard this a few times from folks that were a little more on the left, um, you know, that this was Mother Nature's revenge against the oil companies of Houston. Right? The point is that we all want to know why a disaster like this happens. We think if we can point to, the, to, you know, to why the destruction happened, maybe we can prevent it from happening. Or, um, or we think, well, maybe I, I can do something a little bit different um, to make sure it doesn't happen to us again. Now look again at our biblical passage. It doesn't point, in early in Genesis chapter 6, it doesn't point to a particular group of people and call out their sin that demands a particular flood or hurricane or anything along those lines. This passage teaches us that disasters happen, yes, because of divine justice. We have all sinned. But just because we... uh, so, So it isn't necessarily that New Orleans is worse than Kansas City or that Houston is worse than Washington, D.C. We all rightly deserve those types of natural disasters because our God is a a righteous God who brings justice and judgment against the unrighteous. Disasters hit because we are sinners, not because God is capricious. Disasters hit because whether our sins seem great or small, like Adam and Eve, we too see, take, and consume everything else in this world rather than the Lord God himself. But the passage doesn't just tell us why the disasters occur. They also teach us that God is entirely in control. From the first drop of the flood to the receding waters, our God is in control. From the unbelievable winds of Katrina to um, you know, the violent eruptions of the volcanoes in Iceland recently, our God is in control. We don't know the specifics of why any particular disasters occur, but we know that it does not occur against the innocent. 
right? And at the same time, we know that our God is in control of all of it. Right? So when we begin trying to point the blame at those who are suffering, right, thinking, you know, like, you must have done something to deserve this, we forget that we too deserve that punishment. We forget that we too are sinners in need of a Savior. Right? And so, with that said, let's look at the second part, which is the faith of Noah. We're going to look a little bit more specifically into our passage for this part. Right? We were introduced to Noah last week. Um, when our passage said that Noah found favor with God. Right? And in verse 9, it actually calls him righteous and blameless. It kind of feels like the Bible is telling us that Noah was righteous and blameless and therefore deserved God's favor. But the order of all of this matters incredibly. Right? It says that he found favor before he was considered righteous. Because God loved Noah... And because God showed him favor, that enabled Noah to live righteously, right? And this righteousness and blamelessness isn't compared, it's not compared to God's righteousness and blameless. That's not what is being said here. Because who can stand before the Lord, right? The prophet Isaiah said, woe is me when he came before the very presence of God. The scriptures are filled with people having that reaction, including those who have demonstrated good and, uh, you know, the modeling character for us. The passage is telling us that Noah is righteous and blameless in his generation. In other words, he is righteous compared to the others around him. And he is a God-fearing and righteous man compared to the generations that he is in. And the point is, that is due to the favor that God has for him. That favor is based upon God's love, upon God's initiation. And that favor enables us to respond in obedience. So God comes to Noah, and he tells him of a flood that is to come, and he tells Noah to build this massive ark covered in pitch. Right? And God tells Noah of all of these incredibly difficult things to believe. Right? And Noah doesn't live on, like, beachfront property here, right? Um, it's, this isn't like he's, like, you know, had a bunch of small boats, and now all of a sudden, okay, no biggie, I'm just supposed to build a way bigger one than I've ever built before. Um, no. Noah believes God. Even though there's all of this crazy, difficult things to believe, he has faith. Now, the word faith has a lot of baggage, I think, in an American Christian context. Um, For a lot of Americans, the word faith is this sort of quasi-religious belief that people have a sort of intellectual agreement. Um, That when someone says, I'm a person of faith, they mean... I have this intellectual belief that there is a God, right? Or that there is something greater than myself. Um, And possibly I have this vague sense that that higher power or that God will make everything come out okay in the end, right? That's typically what the word faith means in our broader culture. That is not what biblical faith is. Certainly faith entails belief, Right, that there is an intellectual agreement that must happen, but faith is trust that is born in action, in obedience. Right? Faith is trust that is born in action. 
It does no good for the person burning in a building to say, yeah, I probably am going to die, but just stay there, right? They must believe that the fireman down low is actually able to catch them, not just think that they can, and jump, right? So faith must mean something more. If your belief does not lead to an active obedience, then that faith is dead. Jesus' brother James says that faith doesn't, if faith doesn't lead to active obedience, it is actually no different than demonic faith. Right? Because they too believe that there is a God, but that belief doesn't cause them to live differently. Their entire being is oriented toward rebellion against him. So faith must mean something more. It must be active. It must lead to obedience. And that is what is going on here. Noah has faith because he hears that God is going to bring a destructive flood, that God commanded him to build this ark, that God commanded him to go out and grab a bunch of animals two by two and to fill the boat with enough food, you know, to, I don't even know, like an unbelievable amount of food and will be ultimately filled with an unbelievable amount of, of animal droppings, right? Um, He heard all of this, and it says in 622, this amazing contextual verse that helps us understand what the passage is saying. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. His faith led him to obedience, to build the ark, which would have taken decades, at least, according to most experts, like boat building experts. Um, Apart from divine intervention, this would have taken Years and years and decades. Can you imagine building an incredibly large boat in front of all of your neighbors where there's no ocean or lake anywhere around you? And, you know, they come up to you and they ask, like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, God told me a flood is going to come. And year after year after year, there is no flood. Right. And you get to continue to look and feel like the fool. Right. That is what faith is. Because faith in God and trusting him over everyone else or trusting him over whatever it is that you can perceive will make us look foolish like that at times. Right? When obedience to God's word to love our neighbor actually challenges us to stand up for the person in our office or in our school who's being bullied. And we end up kind of uh, having the reputational hit or having the social implications that come against us as a result. Or how much faith is required when obedience to God's command to rest, right? because the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, causes us to, to quit grinding in our work and in our hobbies. And you, know, you look foolish because you think of all the profit that you could have made right? if you hadn't rested. Or think of the gains that you would have had on the athletic field or in the gym if you hadn't rested. Or think of how much further you would be ahead if you were not sitting in here listening to me talk and you were out there emailing or doing something else. And I don't mean to fill you with, with anxiety as I say that. Um, Faith is required when trusting God's provisions causes us to be patient when everyone else around us is scurrying to grab the last bit of toilet paper, right? Or when trusting God means that we need to remain or should remain emotionally outside of the political fray, 
recognizing that no candidate or no party is going to bring the ultimate salvation and hope that everyone in our culture is desiring. And so we can actually be good citizens by being emotionally detached from the fray and recognizing that all joy is brought through our Lord and what he promises. You know, we have a lot of, if y'all have been to our house, we have a lot of candy. I love candy. Um, and on occasion, um, you know, our kids, we, we leave it out on the counter. Our, on occasion, our kids will, will take it without asking, right? Um, but your, your kids don't do that, I'm sure. Um, but for the most part, they actually don't. Uh, for the most part, they let it lie. Why? Why is that? Because they know that it is there for them. It is there for them. It is there for us, right? And they know that when we say it is the right time, they get to have it, right? They trust that ultimately we have their best interests at heart. And not only that, but that they get to taste and see that we have their best interests at heart, right? That is faith. Living by faith in front of a world that doesn't share that faith is incredibly hard. It can be incredibly lonely, It can seem pointless. But we see here that Noah is doing it. The only way he seems to be doing it is because he knows that God's favor is upon him. And it is far better, it is far greater than whatever social shame or whatever pressure is coming from those around him. His faith in God's provision and God's love and favor has led him to obedience. A life that looks silly, but trusts God. And Noah's faith isn't limited to the obedience of building the ark and gathering the animals and his family, right? The the dimensions of the boat actually give us indication that there was further faith involved here. Um, This is a boat without a rudder, without a sail. In other words, this is a boat that cannot be navigated. Um, It floats wherever the wind and the waves push it. They cannot see where it is headed and cannot control its ultimate destination. He has to trust that God is ultimately in control, that God is literally guiding him and the boat, that God is sustaining him, that God is placing him wherever he is supposed to be. Oh, that we might be able to trust in the same way. That our trust in God and in his goodness would be so consuming that we might be able to trust him with like a, with a rudderless boat of our life for the sake of anxiety and our worries. And, and not to say that all anxiety is related to a lack of faith, but in an increasingly anxious culture, I pray that we would be a people of faith. Alcoholics Anonymous, a, a group that, um, that serves addictive drinkers who are committed to fleeing the abuses of, of their alcohol Uh, often find that it is anxiety that has driven them to the abuse of alcohol. And so in in the recovery process, they learn uh, to pray. And one of their lesser known prayers is, is this prayer. And it's this, it says, God, I offer myself to you to build with me and to do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I might better do your will. Right, this prayer actively relinquishes control. It is a sort of taking off the rudder and the sail and allowing God to float it, our lives wherever we will. Right? And we're only able to do that because we ultimately trust that God provides. 
And this is our last and I promise you quick concluding thought. That God's provision. God provided for Noah here. In his telling of the flood, right? Telling Noah ahead of time that the flood was coming. In his uh, helping Noah to be prepared. In his providing the materials for the boat and providing the materials for the animals. And sustaining and protecting him over the 40-day rains and over the 150 days that he's floating upon the waters. God is providing for Noah here in saving him. And if that's true of Noah, how much more is that true for those of us who are in Christ? Who have placed our faith in a far, far stronger ark. One that allows for us to not only float above the, the destructive waters, right? But that promises us resurrection, everlasting life, and a life that is so good to come that we ourselves also ought not grab the candy from this world knowing that there is far greater candy that is coming in the world to come. Right? That is what our Lord is doing for us. That is what he is providing for us in Christ. And so our faith is in something that is far stronger and far greater even than what Noah would have understood at that particular time. And so we too can respond in faith and respond in obedience, in His provision, in His character because of what He has done for us in Jesus. Let's pray under that end. Our Father, we thank You for what You have done for us in Christ. Lord, that... um, in Him, we have, as we've prayed before, passed through the waves of this troublesome world. Lord, knowing that in Him you have defeated sin, in Him you have defeated death, and that ultimately one day, someday, you are making all things new, where natural disasters will be no more. But until then, Father, we trust that you are in control and that you are providing far more than we could ever understand or delight in. And so, Father, I pray for us as we struggle, as we have doubts, as we want to understand maybe the historical implications of this or all of those elements, Father, I pray that you would give us belief. We believe, help our unbelief. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.